Hello and welcome. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. We started Latter-day Contemplation to largely explore and document our journey of study and faith as we seek to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in anything that we're going to be talking about, but what we do have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to live a life of peace for ourselves, our families, and our community. We love that you are here, and we hope that you find value in this discussion to enhance and strengthen your own discipleship of Jesus Christ. Well, Riley, I'm really excited this time around. We, I, I'm, almost, <laughs> I'm always excited. <laughs> these are great topics. I love discussing these topics. But, uh, but you and I have talked about this for a little while. This is kind of a discussion that we've had in some social media groups, and I know we've talked about on some of the Zoom meetings that we have in the Peace Studies group. And, you know, we've sat down and we've talked about it for a little bit here, but worthiness, worthiness is a, it's a really fascinating concept. It's a really fascinating concept that has, I don't know, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with with the, <laughs> with the idea. And I think I posited in one group, I'm like, I'm, I'm done with the idea of worthiness and unworthiness. I like reject it outright. And, you know, I... A little bit. I don't know if I'm doing a little bit of walking back on it so much as just amending the idea and of of coming up to this uh, this new way of seeing things. Now you talked about repentance and seeing God in a new way as we were discussing just before starting to record here. But you know we have scriptural evidence where we have Christ coming in and talking about not taking the sacrament unworthily and making sure that we're worthy and. We have this idea in our culture of worthiness and of uh, and of how of how we deem worthiness through like our our temple recommend interview questions and we don't usually question the questions right but we uh, but a lot of the times we start to kind of have to wonder like are we are we deeming worthiness based on certain patterns of belief or do we deem worthiness on actions or do we deem worthiness on just on just being like like. Uh, what is this? What is this worthiness thing? And, you know, do we walk or walk around and, and, you know, we have this imagery of like, we're unclean as if we're dirty. Now we can't see the uncleanliness outside of ourselves, but, you know, we kind of look at our bodies and they're like, well, I'm, I'm clean right now, but someone says I'm not clean inside. And then we have these ideas of like, well, I feel dirty. And we, we use language to talk about it in this way. And, but you know, we can't see the dirt, but then we have moments when we like, we feel clean and we feel refreshed and we feel like something is new in us. And so, you know, we do have these human experiences that we put words to such as cleanliness and worthiness. But in a lot of ways, do we give ourselves disservice in some of these discussions? Are some of these discussions helpful? I don't know, Riley, what do you think? I was pretty intimidated when we first decided we were going to try to take on this this topic because it's so big and there's so many layers to peel back to really figure out what is the core of what's trying to be communicated, whether it be in scripture or conference talks or even just within a conversations between you know, members of the church or whatever. What What are we really trying to communicate here? A lot of the metaphor that gets wrapped up in these topics of worthiness have to re- they point us towards you know, unclean hands. So we're thinking about dirt and being dirty and, you know, muddy and filthy. And, and so those kind of metaphors then go to reinforce the, the word itself. Rather than just being descriptive, they, they reinforce and almost become the meaning of the words themselves. And so part of being so intimidated about this was that 
There's a lot of, uh, we use the word culture frequently. There's a lot of culture behind these words. But even more, there's a history to that culture of why we've arrived at the supposed meaning of worth, worthy, worthiness, worthily, these words. Why have we arrived at the meaning that we have? And how is our meaning within the LDS context different than the meaning that is absorbed or ascribed to by members of other faith communities or non-faith communities, whatever? How do we understand those terms differently than other people do? And why? And so what I think we'd like to do, you and I, as we've discussed this prior to launching the podcast here, was that we wanted to try to break these down, involve some scripture, involve a little bit of logic, and tie it into other things like, you know, repentance and progression, exaltation, that kind of stuff, so that hopefully we can arrive at a understanding of what it means to have worth in the sight of God and more closely approximate in our practice and in our understanding how we are already worthy. So that's what I'd like to try to accomplish. It's tough. It's a big task. <laughs> yeah, that's a really big task. And I do. I feel a little bit intimidated still in trying to think that uh, I have an answer to this because I really don't. I don't have a good solution to this yet. I don't know if I have a really good working definition to it. I like a lot of things you were talking about uh, prior to recording. And so I want to get into that. but. You know, we've used this phrase, and, we, and and I've adopted it too over the last several months, maybe going on the last several years, that we are always already worthy. That has really gotten a lot of flack from a lot in the LDS community because of scriptures such as what's in Third Nephi with Christ saying, don't take the sacrament unworthily because of this concept of unworthiness in our in our uh, our culture and our doctrine and our scripture and, and right here from the words of Christ himself. And so what, what are we talking about here and how, how does this plan out? But, you know, for me, a lot of it goes back to, you know, what, uh, you know, Ben and I have talked about it in our Come Follow Me podcast. And it's this idea that the further we get away from God, the more we start to see God as a punishing God or as a vengeful God or as a God that is coming after us. But the closer we get to God, we start to see him more as a merciful, kind, compassionate God, because it's in it's in this relationship of coming into a relationship with God that we start to realize that we really don't do anything of our own. I mean, at best, all we really have is our ability to surrender. Everything else, it's it's like God's grace does literally everything else. What we do is just surrender who we are, what we are, what we think is the right thing, and is basically our own egos, right? It's that whole porn spirit of the Beatitudes. We've talked a lot about this all over the place. Well, Neil Maxwell, I was at a devotional he gave at BYU 20 years ago or more, probably 22 years ago, and he was in the midst of a battle with cancer at the time, and, and he kind of said the exact same thing. In the end, in the final analysis, the only thing we have to give him is our will. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the exact same idea there. Yeah, that's that's perfect because in this we have this will that we have that we hold on to and we want to hold on to our ideas and our ego and we just got to let go of that. For me, I've noticed in my own relationship and my own discipleship that the more that I let go of that which I hold on to the most, that which I think is my greatest identity, my greatest ego, is usually the thing that's keeping me from a relationship with God. And ironically enough, it's usually that thing which informs 
my idea of God. You know, and that that gets to be kind of scary sometimes when I realize that my ego is informing my idea of God. And man, that's hard work to try to to root out and to get out because you know you, you there's no manual for this, and so it's like trying to defrag your own biological operating system to figure out what is real and what is not with no user manual and you have no you have no keys that are marked and you have really no idea what you're doing and so it can get frustrating at times but Ben and I have had this conversation about uh, the doctrine of perhaps and it's something that keeps on coming up over time and time again and this doctrine of perhaps really has to do a lot with the atonement and it uses the atonement as this idea where no matter what atonement theory that we adopt and no matter what idea we think of the atonement is, one of the universal themes in the atonement is that it was a universal atonement. It, w- it was an atonement for all, and that it was an infinite and eternal atonement. So whatever theory we adopt, that's one of the common themes throughout. And just because it is a universal atonement is a fascinating concept, because what that means is that Christ is not there suffering for or with people selectively. He's not like, that guy's going to take me up on it. That that woman right there is going to take me up on it, but she's not going to take me up and he's not going to take me up and he's not going to take me up. So I'm not even going to bother my time with those three because they're not going to take me up on this. And I'm only going to work, walk with and suffer with these two over here that I know are actually going to take me up on it. Right. So that, that lessens my suffering a little bit, right? Because I don't have to worry about the Indians and the Muslims and the Asians because you know most of those people aren't ever going to take me up on it. So whew, that, that could have been really bad, but... <laughs> Right? Thank goodness I only have to suffer for the Western Europeans and the Americans. That's right. <laughs> Just the people that reflect me and my identity, right? Now, right. as Latter-day Saints, if we're being honest, no one is going to actually come right out and say this. No one's going to come out and say that God only suffered for me and for my people. He didn't suffer for them and theirs. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't think about it in those terms. But what we will do is we, we sometimes act like it. We build belief systems as though we believe that, even though when we're confronted with that idea – we, we, you know, we very much reject that we believe that way, but sometimes a lot of our other belief systems are really built on a premises that we don't believe that. And, and part of the way we do this is just in, you know, we, in othering other people, we do this very subconsciously. It's a part of, it's built into our language. It's built into our identities, our national identities and our religious identities and our group identities. And there's a thousand layers of identity that we other with, but this doctrine of perhaps is a really powerful principle in that when we recognize that Christ suffers with everyone and for everyone, and there isn't anyone that he didn't suffer with and for, that changes the, that changes for me this, this definition of worthiness. You know, in the DNC, we have that, that every soul has worth. Right, the worth of every soul is great in the sight of God. The worth of souls is great. Yeah. That's right, and so we have this concept that we are always already worthy in some kind of regard. That worthiness isn't contingent upon, at least in one respect, isn't contingent upon our actions, upon our belief systems, upon anything that we are as people, just to who we are innately. Because if we were unworthy of Christ's atonement, then it kind of creates this catch-22, that Christ's atonement is for those who are unworthy, but it's not going to apply to those that are unworthy. So it's it's like you have to posit that there is worth in someone to sacrifice for them, even if they're not going to take you up on it. And if you're going to posit that you're only going to suffer and sacrifice for people who are going to take you up on it to be worthy, 
then you have to posit that you are suffering and sacrifice for someone who is worthy and will remain unworthy, so that you see a worth in them, even though they're not acting in it, or being in it, right? So then worthiness has to be a quality that transcends action, that transcends sin, that transcends all of the things that we associate to worthiness and unworthiness. It's just a part of who and what you are. So I wrote this out, and I think what you're doing is you're separating action from being. And when we look at the word worth versus the word worthy, in the LDS community, worth is a state of being. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. That's, that's not a conditional statement, right? That's every soul is, is worthy in, in the sight of God. But then you jump down to worthy, and as an adjective instead of a noun, it's worthy of. And there's like a, this prepositional ending that you're just waiting for, like worthy of what? And you can put two kinds of things in there. You can put worthy of the unconditional, which might be God's love. Or you can be worthy of the conditional, worthy of attending the temple, for instance. And so worthy gets separated from worth in a way that starts to frame our understanding of the word that is different from its root. So the original root word here is worth. And in that context, it's this a priori axiomatic word that means, okay, we have divine parentage, inheritance, attributes, relationship, characteristics, whatever. These are conditions that from birth are the same for everyone. We all have great worth in the sight of God just as DNC says. And where we make this transition from worth to worthy, I think, incorrectly, is when we start to add layers or conditions on this descriptive word that should just mean, as a worthy person, that means that I have that divine parentage. I'm worthy. I'm worthy of God's love because I'm his child. I'm worthy of the inheritance because I'm his child. These are, these are unconditional things. Um, and yet we have added additional layers onto that that change the meaning of the word from simply being a child of God and that state of being of having worth in his eyes to I have to do this in order to qualify for his love. And that's a different, that's a different relationship and meaning from the original root. And then if you take that a step further, as we will later on, into the word worthiness and all that that connotes, and draw out the, the ramifications of a temple worthiness interview, or worthiness to pass the sacrament, or worthiness to hold the priesthood, or worthiness to be baptized, then all of a sudden, the unconditional, loving, axiomatic state of being that is being a child of God has disappeared into a reflection of just our actions in, in respect to the commandments of God. So if we're disobedient, all of a sudden we are unworthy. We are not carrying recommends. We are not getting baptized. We are not whatever. All of a sudden our worthiness is no longer the same. And, that, and so it's conditional upon our actions rather than that, that a priori from birth recognition that we are children of God. Everything's changed.
Yeah, that's a really powerful distinction because you know, it's almost like we begin that worthiness becomes the the bed root of worthiness rather is worthy is to be worthy rather than worth. And if we were truly to see our worthiness from our worth as opposed to that adjective of worthy, yeah, I see a lot of things changing there. Well, I think even taking that a step further, that we've corrupted the idea of what it means to be worthy from the original. We talked a little bit before the podcast started about this video that you posted and then I reposted. And maybe this is a good time to play it because I just think it's beautiful. I'm going to frame this just in case you can't hear it through the podcast too well. What's happened here is you got a two-year-old little girl and she slammed her fingers in the door. And she's in the midst of her suffering right now. And so she goes to her mom and she's crying. She's got tears running down her face. And she, her mom essentially tells her to breathe, take some deep breaths. You know, we talk about this in, in contemplation all the time, that the state of being in your moment right now involves first recognition of your breathing patterns. Second, you might feel any emotional or uh, physical pain that you're feeling in the moment. But this mother helps her transition from that trauma, from that pain, into a recognition of what her true identity is as a child of God. And I just think it's beautiful. So I'd like to play it, and I'll maybe afterwards try to explain a little bit further what I mean by how we've corrupted the word worthy. So listen to this. Yeah. To me, this mother gets it like on another level. She does a few things here. First of all, she allows her to express her trauma. She says, I slammed my fingers in the door. Oh, you slammed your fingers in the door. Yeah, I know that. Are you okay? I'm okay. Now I want you to repeat after me because what she's teaching her here is to how to get back to her essential identity. She's not letting the trauma of slamming her fingers in the door define her. Instead, she's saying to her, I'm strong, I'm beautiful, I'm loved. And then she says, I'm worthy. And the daughter repeats, I'm worthy. And if you're watching the video, which you're not, you're listening, but this daughter, after she says, I'm worthy, she smiles. And it's at that point, that was the culmination of everything. You know, she says, I'm strong, I'm beautiful, I'm loved, I'm worthy. That was the highest point of that progression that the mother made. And when I first heard that, I have to admit, I, I'm like, what? That makes no sense. Of course she's worthy. She's a two-year-old. What does that even mean? <laughs> but I was connecting worthy to her actions instead of her state of being, which is a child of God. It's her primary identity. Isn't that interesting? And I asked you before the podcast, Shiloh, did you feel a little weird about that part when she said, I'm worthy? 
Yeah. Why would she make her ask that? Why, why would she make her say that? Makes no sense in our context of what the word worthy means. But this mother gets it. She's pointing her daughter back to her primary identity as a child of God. And a child of God has great worth in the sight of God. And by helping her daughter to realize that fact, she's removed this false identity of her trauma from having slammed her finger in her door. Remember, this is a two-year-old, okay? She's adopting whatever happens to her that's traumatic as her immediate identity. She didn't squash it. She didn't say it didn't happen. Uh, she didn't say you're not really feeling pain. It doesn't really hurt. She acknowledged all of that. And then after she acknowledged it, she pointed her back to her true identity as a child of God who has great worth in the sight of God. So now the understanding of what it means to be worthy has nothing to do with the daughter's actions or external things that happen to her that might affect what she thinks about herself. You know, maybe what was going through that little girl's mind is, I hate that door. I hate this house. That door is mean. I'm so stupid for slamming my finger in my door. My brother who did it, I hate him. You know, who knows what the circumstances were and or what was going through the daughter's head. But it was clearly a traumatic thing for her in the moment. And her, her mother had a way of pointing her back to who she really was. And that was worthy. And encapsulated in the culmination of that progression she made from the very beginning of I'm strong, I'm beautiful, I'm loved, I'm worthy, is this idea of she's a child of God. That's the culmination of love, beauty, strength. So cool. And it had a profound impact on me when I heard that video and the way that the mother had handled it because it not only was a great example to me of proper parenting, not impatient, oh, just shut up, it doesn't hurt that bad, just relax, take a deep breath, whatever, you're fine. No, she acknowledged all that, it was beautiful, it was great parenting. But beyond that, it helped me to reframe my idea of what it means to be worthy and connect it back to the original word of worth. And that's been really helpful as I've been thinking through this whole progression of worthiness and, and worthy and, and you know worthily and these, these kind of loaded words and phrases we use within our lexicon that have changed what we believe about Christ, his atonement, about grace, forgiveness, and repentance. And it, it's just helped me. And so I think that's the... That's the road I'm starting to go down with this new understanding of worth and what it means as a root. And starting to realize more and more that no matter what I do, I have great value, great worth in the sight of God. And that's not to point me away from good actions. You know, Christ himself said, love God, love your neighbor. And that encapsulates everything in the law and the prophets. It's not to point me away from that or discourage me from doing the right thing, but just to remember what my primary identity is as a child of God. Yeah, I like that, because that really does connect a lot back to repentance. And, you know, what we talked about in the last podcast with the false self and what Thomas Merton said about so, so much depending upon our idea of God. And when we really remove ourselves from his presence, we start to really distort and infuse more of our own ego into the story. And so just like you said, that what that mother did is it really took the little girl's story 
of pain and her trauma, and she was able to speak through her trauma, but then really focus it back to her true nature. In doing that, with you know, you can see that with what our Heavenly Father does so much with us. In that repentance, and and I love this uh, this definition in the Elias Bible Dictionary, is just learning to see God in a new way. You know, I've had so many conversations in the last year or so when introducing these ideas of always already being worthy and always already being loved and and introducing the kind of concept of unconditional love into an LDS audience. And I know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kickback against that and and a lot of pushback. I think a lot of it is just equivocation as opposed to just fundamental uh, fundamental doctrine. But in that way, what has come up a lot of the time is this this question of like, well, this is a new way of looking at God. And my response has always been like, yeah, it, it really is. I mean, that's literally the definition of repentance. We're learning to see God in a new way. It's, it's like, well, I've never thought about God like that before. Are you sure that's the right way to view God? And I'm like, well, we're supposed to repent all the time to be able to come to see God in a new way. And if we ever stay in our entire life viewing God only in one way and then just building a system out of that, we're never truly repenting. We're never truly coming into a new relationship with God, just viewing him in one way and then building that structure around it and and like corralling it. And in fact, the more that we corral our ideas of God as allowing God to come into our lives and expand that, that experience with him. We're damning ourselves. That's literally the definition of damnation. We're literally damning ourselves instead of coming out and allowing this to be able to flourish and to bring new life into our experience with God, which I think is fascinating because when we take that understanding back to third Nephi, and when we read what Jesus said, where he says that, and now behold, this is the commandment that I give unto you, that you suffer no one to knowingly partake of the flesh and blood unworthily when you shall minister it. And whosoever shall eateth and drinketh of my flesh and blood unworthily drinketh damnation to his soul. <laughs> you know, we typically think about this in terms of like, you know what, if you masturbated the night before and you took the sacrament, then all of a sudden you're damned. Like you're, you're ready for hell. And we think about it in those terms, right? Because a lot of the times that's the way it's administered. But in a different way of looking at it, we have this concept where we begin to see God in a new way. We begin to expand our view of who and what God is in being able to be brought into a new relationship with God. And if we're not ready to do that, that's what damns us. Literally, repentance is seeing God and ourselves and each other differently. And if we don't allow ourselves to do that, that is damnation. That's when, you know, when John the Baptist comes and he's preaching this new Messiah. And he says, unless you repent, you're going to, you know, there's this damnation that's waiting. It's that there is a new idea of a Messiah that's coming. And unless you understand this new idea of a Messiah, because the Jews had this idea of an old Messiah, it was a false messianic narrative that they had built themselves from Saul, David, and Solomon. They thought the Messiah was going to be some violent, warmongering, army-driven king that was going to overthrow Roman occupation. And what came was Jesus Christ, was something that didn't really care about Rome at all, right? And so the call for repentance that he's making is less about the fact that they're, you know, maybe turning away the widow or something like that. It may be some of that too, but the the call to repentance is that they're 
they're viewing God in the wrong way. They're expecting a conquering Messiah, and he's telling them God's already among you. Repent, because he's here right now, and you're not seeing him. That's right. Yeah, because they were so focused on the letter of the law and of whether or not someone walked so many steps or whether or not someone had, had perfectly said this or did that or had this kind of lifestyle. They were so focused on that that they had a – and then they had built narratives above and beyond that that had cemented in their views of God by these narratives. Yeah, so John's not saying, repent for ye have untied a knot on the Sabbath or repent because you took 380 steps on the Sabbath. It, it had nothing to do with the law as they understood it and their having broken the law. In fact, Paul, Paul talks about this all the time. He says, you know, we're condemned by the law. It's the law that damns us. Yeah. And that, it, that isn't to say that the law didn't serve a purpose. Uh, Nephi talks about this as well. He said, uh, you know, after all we can do, what he's, pointing, what he's pointing to is he's saying, the law is what we have. Christ isn't here yet. We have the law, and we've been asked to keep the law. But it's really grace that's going to save us. It, he, he had a proper understanding, at least in that context, of, of who God was and his role. His, God's role is not to be a deliverer of edicts because the law wasn't going to save him. And it says the same thing in, in Moroni and um, Mosiah that, you know, the law is not the thing that's going to save you. And, and yet he said, we're given this law. And so I'm going to go ahead and obey it for the time being with the understanding that it's really Christ that's going to save us, but he's just not here. Yeah. And so when he gets here, if John the Baptist happens to show up to me and say, repent, I don't know that I'll need to repent because I already understand that I'm not saved by the law. I'm saved by Christ. Right. And so our idea of Christ has to change, right? Or the, the idea of the Messiah in the day has to change because they don't even see the true Messiah coming in to even understand his message, let alone identify him, right? So they have no idea how even to view God because they haven't repented. They haven't expanded their view above and beyond what God is. And so they're literally damning themselves. And so when you see Christ coming in and saying, listen, if you have someone who is this, who's choosing not to expand their mind and to come into the love and the fellowship of God, of who and what God is, then this is simply, this is going to be a, a hindrance to their progression. This is going to be something that's going to hinder what they've got going on. And especially this really makes a lot of sense because there are very few and unique bishops along the way. I know you have a couple stories. I have stories of my own of having bishops who will take in people who are having problems with, you know, maybe a moral issue or having problems with some, some other kind of indiscretion. And one that you would think that, oh, well, they're going to, they're, they're going to not be able to take the sacrament because they're not worthy because their actions define who they are and their actions make them unworthy. And so our cultural view, but what these bishops have done is that they've actually gone above and beyond the, you know, what they think this cultural rule is. And I've known bishops who've actually sent people to the temple who were having other indiscretions in their lives because they're like, you need to go to the temple. I know you told me a story about your, you know, that you have people that you, you've known this about too. Yeah, there, you know, you bring up a good point because if we're not supposed to, quote unquote, partake of the sacrament unworthy, well, heaven forbid if we should prepare the sacrament unworthily because that's a whole other level, right? And so we get this idea of what it means to be unworthy from our cultural understanding, not from the root word of worthiness, which is worth. 
child of God. And, you know, blessed with those divine characteristics, attributes, and, and relationships. And so we, we continually build up this hierarchical uh, ladder of sin, obedience, and, and consequent worthy or unworthiness that comes from uh, abiding by the law. As, as it says here in uh, yeah, Moroni chapter 12, And moreover I say unto you that salvation doth not come by the law alone, and were it not for the atonement which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, that they must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. So, you know, despite anyone's idea that they can keep perfectly the law that is given to them, that's not the thing that saves them. And they will unavoidably perish were it not for this atonement of Christ. And a good bishop, a smart one that wants to apply the atonement and help people understand or have a fresh view about what the atonement means for them, instead tells them to do the practice of serving in whatever capacity they're meant to serve in, and by that service be healed. It's interesting, I told you before the podcast of a friend of mine who you know, had some some sexual indiscretions with the young lady, and he didn't you know, go too far, but he went far enough that he felt like he needed to go and talk to his bishop and clear some things up. At the time, he fully expected to lose his temple recommend. He was a return missionary. And uh, instead, the bishop said, I know what you need. You need to go to the temple. And he was utterly confused. And he had actually driven to the bishop with a friend of his who knew about these indiscretions. And that friend also expected he would lose his recommend. And so when he came out and told his friend what the bishop told him, which was to go to the temple, his friend couldn't believe it. His friend actually walked into the building and he said, did you tell my buddy to go to the temple? Without, and you didn't take his recommend away? <laughs> I mean, wow. imagine the audacity of walking in and second-guessing you know, this person who he obviously would admit that this person has the keys to make that kind of a decision. And yet he questioned the decision of the person who held those keys because it didn't accord to his understanding of what it means to be worthy. Yeah. And so, you know, that that could have been, I'm not sure that that was by itself a, a linchpin, but it could have been a linchpin in changing that person's life. Instead of going the opposite direction of fear, of feeling shame and then maybe resentment for having his temple recommend taken away or discouragement for not being able to get it back, at some future point, because he just can't kick this habit, whatever the habits are. Instead, his, his bishop said, you need to go to the temple. And when he did, he experienced forgiveness. He experienced grace. He experienced the atonement, just like his bishop thought he would. And so then we start to reframe the idea of temple attendance, not as some uh, service for the already pure and sanctified, but a place to go to receive more of the atonement, a greater share of, of Christ's grace. That's a different view altogether than what I'm used to. Right. I mean, and that, that kind of understanding of the love and care and compassion and just unity with God that comes in those moments and from those, like, those stories of those bishops, it really redefines for me the scriptures that we have. Like, for instance, in, Alma 11. And I know you wrote this down in some of the, the notes that we were talking about. But it's this scripture in Alma 11, uh, 30, uh, 37. 
When it says, and I say unto you again that he cannot save them in their sins, for I cannot deny his word, and he has said, no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can ye be saved except ye inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, ye cannot be saved in your sins. <laughs> oh, man. Man, you want to go back to Beatitudes, don't you? <laughs> so much. <laughs> Well, go for it, man. The first and the last beatitude. Let's hear it. I mean, it goes back there so much. I mean, the entirety of everything in the beatitudes, but it's the very first beatitudes. And what I love about it, so Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who is uh, who is uh, an old theologian back in England, he had written a book on the beatitudes where he talked about the law. And just like you said, and what Paul said is that the we're not saved by the law, and in fact. Perhaps the greatest point of the law is to show us that we can't be saved by the law. I mean, that's really the ultimate point. We, we're never going to live the law so perfectly that we were ever going to think that we did it on our own accord. And in fact, we follow the law just to realize that we can't follow the law, that we're never going to do this perfectly. It's hubris to think that we can obey every single commandment. If, if that was even the possibility, there would be no need for the atonement. Right. right, but there's this phrase that we use all the time, and it's it's straight out of First Nephi, and it gets conflated, and you know it, it leads to our cultural understanding of what it means to be worthy and what the meaning of grace and salvation is, and it's it's basically that it's by grace that we're saved after all that we can do, and we take culturally anyway the cultural LDS understanding of that is after all that we can do means we have done everything we possibly could have done, and then the atonement kicks in, and then grace kicks in. But yeah. not until that point. Well, who in the flipping world ever does all that they can possibly do? Literally nobody. And so that absolutely conflates the idea of grace, salvation, and the atonement. And it leads us into this kind of this perfection trap, you know, that we get into. So uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead and continue your Beatitudes. No, it's just like that. I think, you know, that perfection trap is such a good way to think about it too, because we have this, we have this thing. I, I, now I like the new way that we're beginning to talk about it. And I've seen it in several places and, and it's coming out of BYU, a lot of, you know, BYU professors and Deseret Book, you know, this new phrase is starting to come out to help us redefine this cultural cancer in saying that, a better interpretation of that Nephi verse is that we are after that we are saved in spite of everything that we can do. By grace we're saved. No yeah, not with in in yeah. It really shows that it has nothing to do with what you're doing because what you're doing is never going to be sufficient. Now the thing is is we're not obedient because we're obeying the law. We're obedient because we love Father. We're obedient because we've learned how to love not because we're simply obeying rules on a page. That the true conversion comes because we love God, and we love Him because He loved us first, and we've entered into that conversation, in that we've always already been worthy because we have always already been His creation, and we He sees us in the eyes of this infinite love, and this eternal love, this love that brought Christ to be able to suffer and to sacrifice with everyone, regardless of if they're going to take Him up on it. And so when we start to recognize that, and then we come back here to realize that the law, and this is what I like about Spurgeon, is he says that the law, at the very best, has ever brought us to the out of outside wall of the kingdom of heaven. 
If there's a wall, it just brings us to the outside of that wall. The, the law can never, ever get us to be able to cross over and into the kingdom. The law will never get us into that kingdom, ever. All it can do is show us our own indiscretions and in, in lack of ability of being able to cross over. And so we come to the very edifice of the kingdom of heaven, and we cannot cross over. And that's the beauty of the first beatitude being poor in spirit and the blessing of it being the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because it's literally saying, listen, your ego, everything that you've brought with it, everything that you think you are, everything that you think you've deserved, everything that you think you've earned, everything that you think you've qualified for, guess what? It doesn't mean anything. You've got to surrender everything now and to be poor in spirit means that you just give up everything and you surrender everything. And just like what we talked about several podcasts ago, like, and I love that from Meister Eckhart, you've got to surrender even your idea of God. And that is that whole repentance process to seeing God anew. That's the first step in seeing God anew. And leaving that all outside the gate, and all of a sudden, you just find yourself in the kingdom of heaven. And I love it about this because when it says that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven, well, that re- redefines everything that we mm-hmm. find out from uh, Lamoni's father when he tells Aaron, he says, listen, I'll give away all of my sins to know you or to know thee, to know God. Yeah, he's emptying. He's emptying. That's what that is. And I remember reading that as a kid thinking, wow, what a great deal. You just don't sin anymore. And all of a sudden, you know, everything is yours. No, it's so much more than that. It means you've got to root out everything that you think you are. And so this uncleanliness has more to do about our egos and about who and what we are. That's what's, that's the uncleanliness aspect of it is our perception of ourselves. Yeah. Giving up all my sins are the things that he thinks make him who he is. It's his identities. It's his sense of, of belonging to something other than God. And he's willing to give all that stuff up to know and understand the real God. Yeah. And that's not easy. You know, we were like, you know, I was like, yeah, of course I'd give up all my false identities to know God. But the thing is, is that we have to take the work. It's not like God just reveals himself to us and we're like, oh, that's who God is. Our, uh, our going through and surrendering what we think we know, that's a hard, that's a, <laughs> that's a really harsh endeavor. And if, and for those, I mean, most of us have gone through an experience like that. Then we recognize that simply giving up false identity Man, that really, I mean, it's not just a psychological thing. It really has a physical impact on who and what we are as people when we give up those identities. And when we start coming into the presence of God, it's of no wonder to me that in a lot of cases, these repentance processes that happen so quickly, such as in Alma the Younger's case, such as in Lamoni's case, such as in Lamoni's father's case, there's there's many other cases where people just fall to the earth and it takes them a little bit of time. Like it takes a physical impact on us sometimes to do these things. And so, yeah, this worthiness thing, we are always already worthy. The next step is to step inside of the understanding to be able to recognize that, not just consciously, but to be able to recognize that internally. I want to I hear you kind of explain a little bit the last beatitude too in this, con- in this context of the kingdom of heaven and, and being... You know, no unclean thing can enter into the the kingdom of heaven. And if if the first beatitude is poor in spirit and emptying yourself out to receive the kingdom of heaven or to realize the kingdom of heaven, and the last is peacemaker. How does that how does that tie in? 
yeah, so the we go through the whole Beatitudes, and I know we've said it in another place, and and it's a, it's a process, right? So to be poor in spirit leads to mourning, and mourning naturally leads to being meek, and then it leads to being hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and that leads to mercy, purity of heart, being a peacemaker. And the final beatitude there is is a blessedness for persecution. It's a blessedness that we are that the world is not going to receive who and what we are. And then at that point, once we are a peacemaker, and a peacemaker can only be a peacemaker in this sense who has truly emptied and who's meek and who knows how to mourn with those that mourn and who is filled with righteousness and is merciful and is pure in heart. That's the peacemaker. And I know there's a lot of equivocation on peacemaker that we want to make this peacemaker out to be all sorts of earthly identities, right? Um, everything from military leaders to law enforcement agencies to anything else that is not in this context and in the story. And that's, that's a perversion of what we're talking about. But once we are persecuted for being a true peacemaker, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake and, and for Christ's sake, who take upon themselves the name of Christ. Theirs also is the kingdom of heaven. So yeah, it, it, it's a very powerful rhetorical way in the book of Matthew that the first beatitude and the last beatitude are the same blessing of the kingdom of heaven, because it's a way of connecting the first to the end and the last to the first, to, that it's one eternal round, that, that we are always in this process of emptying and being filled and of, and of developing peace within our lives. And we never really escape it. And so in a lot of ways, we can always say on one sense, you're always unworthy because you're never going to actually get to this place of absolute perfection, of, of how we think about perfection in terms of sinlessness. But what we do know is that perfection there in Matthew 5.48 comes from the Greek teleos, which means to be able to come to a fulfillment of your creation. You've now, you've now fulfilled the measure of your creation, as it were. You're now complete. And in that way, that kind of perfection is not only, I don't want to say obtainable, I hate the word obtainable, but we can step into that conversation, we can step into that way of being. And we do that by recognizing that's really who and what we already are. We already are gods. God, you know, Christ even said it himself, ye are gods already. You Right now, you have the power of creation with you right now. That's really what families are, right? We create moments and experiences and things with those that we come in contact with. On so many levels, we are creators already. And everything that God is, we already reflect that in and of ourselves. And so it really does become this process of awareness, of becoming aware of what we already are. And so uncleanliness really is an epistemic damnation that I think a metaphysical one, but I think as we focused on it being a metaphysical distinction for so long that we've really done a lot of damage to ourselves. And that's where I see a lot of the damages in worthiness is we think that worthiness has to deal with um, our metaphysical, uh, a metaphysical evil in ourselves or unworthiness in ourselves when the unworthiness is epistemic and the worthiness is metaphysical. We are, we are always already worthy in that way. Yeah, we've, we've constructed the unworthiness is what yeah. you're saying, right? And, and so one I'd like to try to do here, because I'm sure one of the questions, if anyone's listening to this, is how do we reconcile stuff like Temple Recommend interviews and, and the connection of the term worthiness to that type of a protocol, all right? So you often hear it, the Temple Recommend interview 
either referred to as a worthiness interview or a worthiness test or, or, you know, obviously someone coming out of that says, now I'm temple worthy. How do we reconcile something like that to this new, this fresh idea about God and his love for us and that we are already always worthy? This is where I, I, I you know, we, we tread a line and I, I'm, I'm not going to try to be careful, but I also don't want to actively try to be a critic. I think there's a lot of cultural culture that's built up in the practice of the Temple Recommend, Recommend interview. And if you look back at the practice of it, that kind of originated during the, the Mormon reform era uh, around Brigham Young's time. You know, the Temple Recommend interview, even though maybe not quite formalized back then, it had some form, it had some structure. Bishops and state presidents had less of a stake in it. I mean, temple recommends were signed by the president of the church, I think, all the way through Wilford Woodruff until he turned that over to state presidents and bishops just to save himself from doing 3,000 signatures a month or whatever. But the questions back then, you look at them, they were like, have you ever killed somebody in cold blood? <laughs> like, uh, no. All right, here's your temple recommend, you know. Or have you ever branded your neighbor's cattle? You know, and, and so the, the questions have definitely changed over time. And that tells us a little bit of something, at least for me, about what, the, what they were trying to accomplish with the interview itself, right? There's always been some kind of an exclusivity to religious practice. I mean, the very idea of religion itself is this idea of exclusivity. We're in the club, those people aren't. And that connects directly to the idea of worthiness, by the way, like because even before you join the club, quote unquote, there's some questions for you, you know, like the baptismal interview you have with a bishop, even if you're pre-8 years old and there's no sin at that age uh, as as LDS doctrine understands things, nevertheless, there's still an interview there where it's like do you understand what you're getting into. Here's the test. What is baptism? Uh, and for an eight-year-old, they might say, well, I become clean. And then the bishop's like, ha, 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 gotcha. You were already clean. And, and so really then it, you know, he helps them understand what, what baptism is. You're following the example of, of the Savior who also was baptized and who also, like you, was clean. And so, you know, it's a good thing. You're teaching these kids. But nevertheless, that kid walks into that, he's probably feeling a little bit of anxiety because he's like, this is my test. If I get my, you know, my baptism recommend or whatever. And, you know, I was baptized when I was 21. And for me, it was a very different interview because how many 21-year-olds, what, what are the concerns of 21-year-olds? You know, it's like, it's sexual misconduct, it's drugs and alcohol, it's, you know, disobeying parents, it, you know, breaking the law, whatever. <laughs> Right. There's all kinds of things that could be for a 21-year-old. So my baptism interview was quite different. But nevertheless, you had, you had to go through this test, even though it was a little bit different than an 8-year-old goes through. And so there's always been this, this test in order to join the club. And if you pass the test, you're worthy. And if you don't pass the test, you're not yet worthy. And you could say the same for missions, and you could say the same for temple marriage or endowments, whatever. There was always some test. And back in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, whatever, the test was obviously a little more severe in terms of the, the sins they're calling out. Like, have you ever murdered someone? I don't think that's in our current recommend questions, right? <laughs> murder, murdered in cold blood. I don't remember seeing that one. Right. 
now our questions are, you know, do you uh, do you understand the word of wisdom? And you know, every every apostle pre you know Grant is probably failing that. Yeah, right. <laughs> that question. <laughs> I don't know. That that's probably not a good thing to say. But nevertheless, things have changed, and so we. It seems like in that span of time, we've become much more attached to the idea that we can earn our way in, not just into the temple, but by extension, heaven, because the temple is all about exaltation. Those are the saving ordinances, right? We talk about that all the time. The temple contains the saving ordinances. Well, in order to partake of the saving ordinances, you got to earn your way into that temple. And earning your way in means keeping the law. And with pretty much exactness, that there's, there's a little leeway, maybe, like, for instance, on the word of wisdom question, you know, it's probably okay if you eat meat all the time. If you're a full-on, you know, carnivore, like a Jordan Peterson who eats nothing but red meat, uncooked, whatever, he could probably get a recommend if he did everything else right. <laughs> right. You know? So there's a little bit of leeway, but for the most part, it's like, hey, as long as you can, you know, do the things the way we say, according to our understanding of what the scriptures say, not the explicit understanding, but like the way we tell you we think is the most important way to understand it, then you can earn your way into the temple and earn your way into heaven. That's at least what is subtly and not explicitly communicated through that process, in my view. And that's not to necessarily criticize the idea that we want to, you know, keep out the riffraff, because I don't know, I don't really want people standing up in the middle of an endowment session you know, claiming to be the devil or something like that, right? That, it would ruin everyone's experience. So I get it. There's a certain amount of gatekeeping that maybe is necessary. But I think the way that we've done it is we've, not explicitly, but at least by implication, communicated that you can earn your way into this thing, whether it be the temple or the kingdom of heaven by extension. And that plays right into this idea of worthiness. Uh, how do we how do we go about reconciling this process? Yeah, you know it's it's hard. It's hard. So I'm not a really big stickler on the word of wisdom, right? So it's that's not to say that I'm I'm loose with it. I'm like, yeah, whatever you want to do, you do. That's not what I'm talking about. It's just it's never been my soapbox. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's never been one of those the uh, soapbox things that I've ever. But I know a lot of people who it is, and I've had a lot of conversations with people who are very health conscious. And who are nutritionists and who really get into like the, the nitty and gritty and they want to be obedient to what this is, you know, not just the, the, the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law of, as well. And to see what this, this will produce and to see what this is. And the word of wisdom is, is I think a fascinating case for how to have this discussion about the temple recommend interview in a worthiness scenario because of just how convoluted the word of wisdom really is. We really don't know, like you said, with meat, what does it mean to eat meat sparingly, right? We have no idea what that means, uh, you know, except for in for times me, of, of famine. nine ounce steak instead of a 12 ounce steak. <laughs> That's what it means. That's what it means. <laughs> right? It, I just, it's, so, it's so bizarre how we've done that, you know, but, uh, you know, is it hot drinks? It specifically mentions hot drinks. It's later been classified as coffee and tea, but not all teas, just green and black teas, because I don't, I don't, it's like, that's the devil tea, apparently. 
Whereas like a peppermint tea or like an herbal tea is not in that same realm. Some apostles thought it was, some of them don't, but the church doesn't enforce herbal teas like they do green and, and black teas. Even though it's really hot and burns your throat and gives you cancer, but a cold coffee is a no-no. But a cold, yeah, but a cold coffee is still a no-no because it's coffee because, and then it, it was caffeine for a while because it has caffeine, but then that got into hot chocolate, but then hot chocolate is hot. And it, like a hot drink, but, yeah, but it's but it's not like a hot drink in the same way. So it's not in that particular way. Then we had mild drinks, right? So now we're in this milieu of saying, well, you know, there's hard liquor that's a no no. There's beer that's a no no. But then there's like this weird middle ground that some members that I know who are very health conscious walk with what they call mild drinks. And these mild drinks are like your uh, oh, I'm, I'm pulling a blank now. What the the drink is. Like a kombucha? Yeah, like a kombucha. That's what I'm talking about. Like a kombucha, right? You know, so slightly, has like a slight fermentation to it that, you know, that this is a, a health drink for them. It's not it's not an alcoholic drink. Um, but then we have people who that uh, for the longest time, and I grew up in the culture, it's changing now. It just changed at BYU campus, right? About caffeine and about how caffeine has been perceived about uh, things. I remember when President Hinckley was in the 20 or the 60 Minutes interview and he said, as part of the wisdom, no caffeine. And that, that like threw a whole bunch of members for a loop. And I remember the whole hullabaloo for like six, seven years after that. I think there's a story with McKay when someone handed him a cup that said Diet Coke at a BYU game. And he's like, I don't care what the outside of the cup says as long as there's Coca-Cola in this cup. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was McKay. And that could be apocryphal, but... <laughs> right. No, and we we heard of pres you know I've heard stories of President Monson who liked I think Dr Pepper or like Diet Dr Pepper something like that. Man after my own heart, if that's if that story is true, I don't know. But the point of bringing this in is not to cause doubt. It's not to be able to cause anger or resentment or anything about it. It's trying to create a sense of empathy and of sincerity or and of sympathy for those who are going through these things. Where we like to consider ourselves consider ourselves rigid law followers, but then when we really turn to a lot of some of the laws that we want to be rigid to to find out that they are just a hot mess, that, that at, we have to almost appeal completely to the spirit of the law, except for in like a few in particulars that are not consistent with the letter of the law, then at that point, we're like, all right, but if I drink black coffee... Then, I, then my spirit is unclean. But if I if I go out into a and if I gorge myself and if I drink soda, like if I drink like 128 ounces of soda every single day, and I go out and I just eat meat all the time and I gorge myself and I and I just all that is word of wisdom, okay. But if I, as a health conscious person, have a little bit of green tea in a in a product. That is a health conscious product that's against the word of wisdom, and that makes me unclean. Yeah, and and you'll hear people a lot say, "Well, it's just about obedience; it's not about health." But it is called, law, you know, the Lord's law of health. If you've taken this literally, which a lot of people like to take this particular subject literally, well, then you know it either is or it is is not about health. But but the bigger question is just the whole process of. Of temple recommend questioning and this this establishment of a worthiness or lack thereof in order to earn our way or get into the club or into the temple, so to speak. When someone asks us, you know, well, 
yeah, I okay, I can buy this idea that I'm I, I'm already worthy all the time. Right. I, I'm I have great worth in the sight of God. I can buy that idea. But then when someone tells them that they're not temple worthy, how do how do we break through that dissonance that that, that it can cause when someone wants to believe that God believes they they have great sight, great worth in his sight, but yet is restricting them from from the ability to progress within his kingdom, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a hard one, and and one more example because we did bring up uh, we did bring up the word of wisdom. Tithing is another big, big uh, you know one of the top five <laughs> as you were about the temple recommended questions, right? And the, the thing is, is that now there are questions coming around like, well, do we pay ten percent of our gross? Do we pay ten percent of our net? Like what makes me a true tithe payer and what makes me a true, what makes me truly worthy? And I've had that conversation and man, it hit me like a ton of bricks one time when I had someone ask me like, like I want to be worthy, but I don't know if I need to pay on my gross or if I need to pay on my net. And I'm like, oh man. Poor soul. Poor, poor. So, and, and it, a lot of it's the culture. Now I've had, now I've lived in, uh, and, and I've said this before, I've lived in 22 different wards. While I've been married to my wife, my wife and I, we moved around a lot, but here in the last several years, we've, you know, we bought a house, put down roots. And so I've seen a lot of bishops, I've seen a lot of stake presidents, and I've seen a lot of them define it differently. Now in the church handbook, it says that you just ask them if they pay tithing, that gross or net is not a matter of it's on there, but I've actually had stake presidents and bishops who have taken upon themselves that they think this is what it needs to be. And so they enforce it that way. And that's how they interpret it. And so when well, they ask, even if you don't have a bishop or a stake president who's, you know, kind of taking it upon themselves to enforce a certain understanding, nevertheless, there is a cultural understanding of a lot of these things, whether it be tithing, word of wisdom, temple garments, uh, anything. And then there's you know the individual's understanding, and if, and if those things contradict each other, it creates that dissonance. So someone might show up at the recommend interview, and even though these questions, I mean, we basically self-select ourselves, right? We're either in or out based on our responses. Right. And if someone asks us, do you keep the word of wisdom? And like you said, you might drink a little green tea in a health-conscious product or something like that. You know, that person might understand themselves as obeying the spirit of the law and answer yes, and there would be no question about it. The bishop's not going to grill them most of the time. But then there's someone else who might do that and then at the moment in the interview feel some kind of twinge of guilt because they're not keeping the cultural expectation of what the word of wisdom is saying. Or the same goes for tithing, you know, gross net. Well, I pay on the net, but they show up at that recommend interview and they're asked, you know, do you do you keep the law of tithing? And, you know, they hesitate and they're like, well, you know, I pay on the net. And the bishop might ask them again, well, do you consider that paying a full tithe then? Yeah. And they're, and they're like, well, I... I, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? You know, <laughs> and that's where things become so convoluted. You know, right. I would, I've often might imagined myself doing this at Temple Recommend interviews myself where I, where I show up and the question is asked and I translate it in my head. Are you worthy to get into the temple? Are you worthy to attend the temple? And then the next question is asked and I translate it in my head. Are you worthy to attend the temple? <laughs> yeah. And I just keep answering yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I know that God loves me. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I, I think ultimately that's why I, I bring up these things. And it's not it's not to be critical. There's there's no ounce of criticism that I feel in any of this. What what is to show is to say, 
you know what, let's be a little bit more understanding. Let's soften ourselves a little more. Now, not all of us, I, I don't know if anyone who's ever going to listen to this has, is in any church leadership. I, I don't have anybody who I think is going to listen to this. But in that particular way, as us as members, those who listen to us who are members, let's soften our hearts and how we view each other. We're not in a position probably that I'm going to go sign. I don't ever look to be a bishop. I, literally to be in church leadership would be my own personal hellscape. I just, that's not whatever I, I want. Like I, I was really happy teaching seminary. <laughs> And I kind of was happy to stay there. I just, my time and my schedule got to be too much. But to be in church leadership, I have such respect and and kind of sorrow, sadness. I don't know if that's the word. I see someone called into that leadership. I'm like, man, I would not want that for myself. I'm, I, I'm so grateful for their time, their means, their efforts, and everything that they give to that calling. But then there's this cultural aspect of who and what we are that we have to acknowledge ourselves and realize, you know what, let's be a little bit more empathetic and sympathetic to not only each other, but to ourselves. In realizing and recognizing that if we look at this as a letter of the law kind of a deal, now I'm not advocating for anybody to go out and be like, hey, listen, I listened to this podcast and this guy said to be empathetic, so I'm not going to pay tithing. If that's out of all what anybody's getting out of this, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying is that whatever our relationship is to God within the bounds of, of what we're talking about here with this, for us to recognize to be, number one, more empathetic and sympathetic with people and about how you view your own worthiness, that you are not simply an amalgamation, you're not simply the sum of your sins and your good deeds, that you are always, truly, always, already worthy. Now, do we have to, are we going to address that the fact that there is even a gatekeeper before going into the temple? There's a lot of discussion, I know, and, and it's not a new discussion. We're not bringing any, any new discussion into this. There's been a lot of talks and a lot of articles written about the need or the, the lack of need for a temple recommend interview question to go in to serve in that capacity. I'm not in the, I'm not in the place to serve. I'm not in church leadership. I'm not going to tell the church what it should do. That's not my place. I, I don't really care to, as I said. I don't want to be the person who makes that choice and decision. But what I do recognize is that with the choices and with the way things are administered right now, there are certain ways that we as a culture have adopted those ways of thinking, have adopted those practices, and what we now think about ourselves because of how we have adopted it. And that's what I'm speaking to. I'm not talking about whether or not the church should or shouldn't have these interview questions. I'm not talking about what they should have interview questions about. I'm saying that, listen, we have these questions, and now there is a way that this has now shaped culture, and there is a way that we now view ourselves because of it. And that, I feel, is where you and I can then come along and say, you know what? Here is a new way of looking at God that's not even a new way of looking at God. It's an old way of looking at God that perhaps in our, in our culture is a new way. Mm-hmm. And it's this loving, kind, benevolent God who always loves us, that we are always in his presence, always already worthy, and that we simply need to recognize that, that we are not framed in our unworthiness by our actions, but by our perceptions of ourselves, that if we come into this place where we've damned ourselves because we will not progress beyond what we are into seeing God in new ways, then we've literally damned ourselves. So as a culture, can we from the grassroots raise ourselves up to seeing God in a new way to recognize that the way that perhaps we've interpreted 
and the way that we've carried forward the fact that there are interview questions. And I'm not going to question who, what those interview questions are or why they're there. That's a completely different discussion, but for me, but at least to say, we have these discussions, here's the culture, here's what it's produced. And can we look at each other with greater kindness and love and compassion and mercy in seeing our worthiness so that we don't have moments where people are going around self-selecting? Because I literally hear stories about people who don't feel that they're worthy, who as a teenager struggled with masturbation. And I, in fact, I read it today. I, I read it today on social media. Another person I know who left the church because one of the th- of initial things that happened was is as a teenager, they were equated that masturbation and the occasional viewing of porn was a sexual sin that was equal, second only to murder. And so they viewed themselves as a person who couldn't overcome the temptation that was second only to murder, that the only thing they could have possibly have done worse, they thought, was to go out and literally kill someone. That's how that 17-year-old viewed themselves in this church because of the narratives that we frame around ourselves and worthiness. Now, sin is sin, sure. But when you take that person, you recognize that person, how much more powerful would have been if you would have taken that same person and have brought him in and have told him, God loves you. God has you in his arms now. Nothing you will ever do is outside the parameter and of the encompassing reach of God. And in fact, what you're doing right now does not define who you are in his eyes. But it's simply, will you rely on him and will you seek to try to find a greater space to experience his love? And then lead that person in true leadership into a relationship with Christ where they no longer see that they have an identity that they could have just murdered somebody and that would have been the only thing worse than what they were doing. Or even that they just can't escape this person. They think they've become this horrible, wicked, awful person. Yeah. And so that identity is carried with this person the entire time. And now they, as of today, they announced they left the church. That this carried that identity and that burden for so long. It was unnecessary And that's really what gets me, is that these things that we create sometimes as a culture are entirely and holistically and completely unnecessary to how things need to be. Yes, I get, I see what Jesus wrote here in this, in, in his discourse to the, in the Book of Mormon. Yes, I see that no unclean thing can enter heaven because you can't enter the kingdom of heaven this way. Yes, I see that. But the way that we're framing this, and I've said this a lot, is that in a lot of the ways, are when we look at the mythos and the ethos of Mormonism, and I use Mormonism specifically, but if you look at the Mormonism, the ethos and the mythos of Mormonism, we are far more American than we are Christian. Now, there's evidence that that's changing, and I glory in that evidence that that's changing. But what that means is that in these subtle nuances, these identities and these culturisms that we've adopted for ourselves and the fact that we view God in this particular way and that we frame the identities around them and the people who are literally suffering, who don't need to be suffering in the way that they're suffering, are now, it's just unnecessary. And that's really where it gets me. It's unnecessary. All of these people could have been reclaimed. It's just like with Jesus there with the woman taken in adultery. Master, the law says for us to stone her. And he, and then he, you know, he, the famous whosoever's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And when they leave and he looks at the woman, it's one of my favorite verses. 
where he says, woman, where are thine accusers? And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Because we know that Satan in Hebrew is accuser. That's what it means in Hebrew is accuser. Woman, where is Satan? And she's like, I see him nowhere. Yeah, no man. No man, Lord. And the Christ literally says, neither do I condemn you. He's not there to be able to say, you know what? You've got a year of repentance now in front of you. You've got to go out and do all these things. You've got to put in your penance. You've got to read your scriptures every day. Here, read this book. Read this quote. Then at that point, you're going to go on. No, it was, I don't, I'm not here to condemn you. Go thy way and sin no more. Yes. But I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to try to think that you are something that you're not. And just going, and taking this back full round back to what you played with there with that little girl and her mom. It's her trauma had already been brought into the open. Now it's time to heal. And now it's just the healing. Just go thy way and sin no more. And we don't have to carry these burdens of like, of worthiness of like, of this idea of what our, our mental and spiritual state is with God when we can truly plug into these moments when we recognize that we are always already worthy there in the presence of God. And we just have to plug into that to experience it. And it's like this little girl that keeps, you know, the first time her mom says, take a deep breath. And then she points back to the door. Like she wants to go right back into her trauma. Her mom's trying to lead her out of it. And, you know, she's she's pulling herself back in. She's not letting herself escape the trauma. She's like, yeah, but the door right back there, that's the one that slammed you. I know, you slammed your fingers in the door, didn't you? So go ahead and voice that again. It hurt, didn't it? Yeah, it hurt. Okay, now I want you to repeat after me. Oh, first, take another breath. (laughs) Yeah. And it's beautiful how the mother just patiently leads her daughter out of the trauma without discounting it. She acknowledges it and then leads her out of it. And it's the same thing that you're recognizing here with Christ and the woman taken in adultery is that, woman, where are those thine accusers? She's still got her head hanging low thinking, you know, Everywhere I go, people are going to accuse me, and I'm going to accuse myself, and I'm never going to get over this. And he says, neither do I accuse thee. Go that way. Sin no more. You're going to be fine. Just remember who I am and who you are, children of God. Yeah. See, that's the kind of worthiness I can get behind. Just that you are always a child of God. And because of that, Christ saw worthiness in you at all times that that atonement and now whatever atonement theory you want to adopt, whatever, whatever it is that floats your boat, as it were, Christ suffers with each of us. And he rescues us. He comes back to us in our trauma and the rescue is nothing more nor less than helping us realize our divine nature and worth, our original state of being. Man, the rescue has nothing to do with helping us walk up this ladder until we hit the top rung and we can stand on the top like Rocky with our hands up and proclaim, I've made it. I did it myself. That's not, that's not the rescue. The rescue is pulling us out of our false identities, our ideas about ourself, our worth, and telling us in no uncertain terms, you will always be a child of God. You're already always worthy. Yeah. O'Reilly, I, I don't know what more I have to say about it. I think that's that's a good place for me. I can live with it. 
I would say that's a worthy podcast. That's a worthy podcast. <laughs> uh, well, everyone, if you stuck with us, if you listened this long, we appreciate it. I hope that you've had some value, some found some value to the discussion. And as have I, I, you know, I, I love do I love doing these. I love being able to con- talk with people. I love having people rally you to be able to discuss these things. It's always edifying for me. You know, it, it really does help to bring things into context and bring things into focus. Sometimes that we are experiencing religious life and, you know, we have our, like our secular, you know, people have different lives that they kind of compartmentalize. And sometimes it helps to bring it into one to realize, you know what, we're not a lot of these different people. We're just this one person having, having, you know, different experiences. And, you know, if you're struggling in, in church, if you're struggling with feeling worthy, just know that you're loved. Well, let's do this. This is really cool. I think I, I want to take what this mother did and just do this with our audience. Like you said, Shiloh, if there's people out there that are listening to this right now, that are struggling. Take this next 20 seconds and just repeat after me. I am strong. I am beautiful. I am loved. I am worthy. How's that make you feel? Made me feel great. Made me feel great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, until next time, you guys, thank you for listening. I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Riley Ristol. Peace, everyone.